What's going on, everybody? And welcome into the 81st episode of the Crazy One Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Stephen Gates, and this is the show where we talk about creativity, leadership, design, and everything else that helps to empower creative people. Now, be sure to subscribe to the show so you get the latest episodes whenever those come out. And as always, you can listen to all the episodes, get the show notes, and a whole bunch more. Just always head over to thecrazyone.com. That's the crazy and the number one.com. Now, as we get into the 81st episode, we're going to do something different. Different in that you're actually going to, for the first time, hear from some other voices on this podcast. Now, what I wanted to do is I wanted to share a panel that I'd put together that I did this year at How Design Live. The panel was called Why Innovation is Rarely Authorized. And it's a conversation that I had been trying to put together for a while because it's with two of the people who I think are probably some of the most influential in my life, two of the smartest people that I know. And it's Greg Larkin, who is a best-selling author. He wrote a book called This Might Get Me Fired that I think is really essential reading for any any creative leader. You you need to you need to read this. And and I don't just say that because he actually interviewed me for one of the chapters. That was how we met. But I think going on from there, I think Greg has a really, really great view and a really great track record at how to bring innovation into companies. And then the other person is going to be Sina Mosayeb. And, and Sina was somebody who I met whenever I was at City and he was at IDEO. Whenever you hear me talk about design thinking, whenever you hear me talk about cultural change, a massive, massive amount of that came from working with Sina. And he, at this point, he's left IDEO, and he's the managing director at a uh, startup incubator called Expa in, in San Francisco. And he, I, I'll often constantly describe Cena as like my spirit animal. I think as you listen to this episode, th- there's one section where he will describe if you want to bring innovation to a company um, like Super Mario Brothers. And I think not only just because his ability to take something that complicated and put it in terms like that is brilliant, but also just... As you can hear, the, the passion and the energy that he brings to it is just absolutely infectious. So that was why I wanted to get the three of us together to have this conversation about innovation. And this was one of those rare moments where, for me, it was an exceptional conversation that was actually recorded so we can share it. And now I know a lot of you have been interested. A lot of you have been asking about the the main stage keynote I did exist loudly Um, that will probably be the next episode because I think, you know, that was one that was also extremely well received. It was, it's incredible that whenever I look at all the talks that came out of how, um, I have two of the top three talks that came out of there, but I want to share this one first because I feel like this one's more relevant. And like I said, for me, it was a place where I really like having these other voices in the conversation. So for this week's episode, this is why innovation is rarely authorized from How Design Live 2019. So I think what we wanted to do today was I wanted to get together um, two of the smartest people that I know and wow. and to talk about innovation. No, I know. that's, that's See, they ripped on me. You go, I'll build up yours. <laughs> um, because I, I think, look, you know, the, the intent of this session was, I, I've been to so many conversations about innovation. I've been to so many conversations with companies and, and different things like that. And everybody's like, innovation's hard, and let's complain about why it's hard. Um, that's not what this is meant to be. So I think, you know, a lot of, if you've ever heard me talk about design thinking, if you've ever heard me talk about, you know, how to change culture, Cena's the one who taught me a ton of that. Um, I talked about it in the keynote. If you've ever heard me kind of talk about how in a lot of companies, 
the innovation that they need will not be authorized. That came out of the, the work that Greg has done. So I think that was what I wanted to do today was just to get us together and have a conversation. And I think the intention for this truly is for it to be a conversation. And I think, like, look, as we go through this, if there is something that you feel like you want to contribute to, something you want to press more on, throw your hand up, ask a question, do something like that. I know it's a big room, but I think, you know, we want to have that sort of conversation, make it interactive, make sure we're leaving room for a lot of questions, leave space for time like that at the end, do those sort of things. So however awake, brave you're feeling, any of that sort of stuff, do it that way. Mm. So I think why don't we, why don't we kind of start with... Um, Probably an introduction in your own words then. So, Sina, why don't you tell everybody who you are? Oh, man. So this is the hard part. I have a talk coming on later on, so I'm saving all the good stuff for then. But I'll give you a little bit of good stuff. Um, so my background, I'm actually a reformed academic. I studied social sciences, got a PhD. And like every proud parent, they want to see their kids say, I don't want to do this right after they graduate. And I went to the world of design um, because... Uh, so how many of you guys have heard of IDEO? I should not presume that you know IDEO. Okay. So IDEO is a design firm. Uh, they, they, they used to design things, and then they designed services. And they got to a point in their evolution, and I was interviewing to be part of that great organization that did cool shit. And I was interviewing to be a design researcher, because that's the only thing I can make myself seem convincible to do at that organization. And they said, well, you can, we'll accept you, and you can be a design researcher. That's cool. But would you be open to being hired as a systems designer? And I was like, this is so cool. They're about to hire me. And I was trying to keep my cool. But I had no idea what a systems designer was. And I was like, look, I'm going to be honest with you. I have no idea what a systems designer is. And they said, that's good news because we don't either. We just created this role. <laughs> and, and we're hoping you can help us figure it out together. And what it came from, and I think this is all related to what we're about to talk about, is that they realized that when they were giving like these amazing aha moments of great products or great services to these organizations, from Fortune 500 companies to like smaller batches or governments, that the organization wasn't set up to continue that legacy of innovation, or they would botch it up. We would give them some great design, some beautiful design deck with some schematics and things like this, but by the time it went out the door, it looked like a pretty shoddy product or a pretty horrible service. And they didn't have the right people to do it. So they knew that when you design something, when you design a service or something like that, you have to think of the entire system. And so I think that's the world I got into. And I became obsessed with how do you bring social movement theories to creating change within organizations, uh, particularly when it came to innovation capabilities. That's it. That's why you always bring people who are smarter than you to the party. <laughs> Greg, how about you? Yeah, uh, this journey began, uh, I was the head of product at an investment research startup called InnoVest. We got acquired. I went into the acquisition. I stayed on post-exit, and I realized that there is an enormous difference between being a startup entrepreneur and being a corporate entrepreneur. Um, I think innovation in every context is both birth and death. The birth part is what we all talk about and get excited about, and that you're creating something that the world needs and doesn't yet have, and that's thrilling. And when you can make that come to life, uh, I think everyone should devote their life to that. Um, but it's death because someone always thinks they're doing it already, and they view you as an existential threat, and they'll do everything in their power to cut you down. And part of the difference I found between a startup and, a, and, a, and an enterprise entrepreneur in a startup, everyone who thinks you're trying to kill them is outside of the four walls of your company, and there's this 
degree of piss and vinegar and um, uh, solidarity that you're in awe of the mountain you're moving and you're inspired by the people you're moving it with on the outside in a big company, the person who thinks you're trying to kill them is right down the hall. And they've gone golfing with your CEO every Saturday since the Reagan administration. And that's just like, a, just like it's with my talk, this is going to be therapy, so yeah. <laughs> um, and you know, I went, I, when I was the head of innovation at Bloomberg, I realized after a while of launching products, and some of them went on to make huge amounts of money, um, and some of them were wildly successful in the enterprise, but the thing that differentiated the ones that went on to catalyze enormous like 33x returns on investment and those that didn't is someone said, you know what, I'm a punk, I'm here, fucking fire me, seriously. If you think you want me on the outside of your company competing against you, get rid of me. If that's something you want, uh, and it, you know, it was always that was the starting place. Never like, we have a design thinking lab. We are investing in the blockchain. We just created an incubator. That's all bullshit. It always started with someone that was like, kill me first. Like, I'm not waiting, modernity can't wait for me. It might be able to wait for you. It might pass you by. And so I guess I'm on a mission to make more people take that kind of a stand. That's why I'm here. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's why we, I think we want to have that discussion, right? It's because I think there's sort of that pink elephant that sits right in front of us that I think for most companies that I think we all work with, innovation happens almost in spite of the company, not because of the company. Yeah. And, you know, so again, I think we'll probably go back to you. So I think, so you wrote a book called This Might Get Me Fired. We, we, we're gonna, we're gonna actually, so he's got 120 copies of it with him, so anybody who wants one, gonna give that away after this, so. And all three of us are signing up, so it's a rare opportunity to get three signatures to get, on To Monday. get three signatures, nobody cares, about, yeah, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, that's why we come to this, like, you know, we're cool, just in a really, really small section of the world. <laughs> it's um, called the vanity metric. Yeah, but, <laughs> but I think that's that sort of thing, and I think that'd be the question for either one of you, like, I, I guess that's just the start, like, what, what does innovation look like, or where does it start, or, because I think everybody's here because there's that, like, we want it, but either what do what do I as an individual do about it? What do we as a company do about it? How do I bring it about? How do we not just sit around and like yeah. talk about it like a word that everybody understands what the hell it means? So first of all, it's never called innovation. Anytime there's someone in an organization who has innovation in their job title, it usually is a excuse for not innovating. It's up there with thought leader. Yeah. It's like anytime anybody has it in their title on like Twitter, it's like thought leader. I'm like, nobody who ever is would ever say that. Um, but I think where it actually starts is when there's a really high cost of not innovating. And if you're actually going to make entrepreneurship, which I think is a more accurate term for it, take root in a big organization that's not entrepreneurial, you better be the one that's running into the burning building while everyone else is running away from it. That's really where it takes root, and I think design plays a, a pretty instrumental role in that, in that that's really the first draft of what a new normal might look like. It happens because of designers. If something takes a long time to build, that first installation where people can actually interact with a better future happens because of designers. I don't know if designers embrace themselves or think of themselves in that way, but I, I think of them in that way. Yeah. And every time where there is that burning building and that first sort of draft of what a better way might be. It, it does start with design. Yeah, no, and, and I think that's that's a bit of our challenge, right? Because I think in many cases we get insecure, we give up, we're not sure what to do with it. And I think 
So, see, I think it's interesting. So, you've gone from IDEO, yeah. world's best companies, biggest companies came to you guys. So, now you're at Expo, which is kind of much more of like a startup incubator. Yeah. So, it's sort of an interesting perspective. So, I'm curious. Yeah. So, I think that's a great point. I think, um, <laughs> as you guys all know, and probably for many of you know, uh, innovation sounds like a great thing. And it sounds like a verb, actually, doesn't it? Like, you innovate. But really, it's an outcome. Right? Because if you, if I zoom you all the way back to human, human evolution and human psychological development, what really innovation can translate is two things. One is improving or introducing something new to make our lives better. Period. That's it, right? That's the outcome of doing it. Now, what it really entails, the action of it entailing is, if you go back to our subconscious roots, our fear, your CEOs, your managers, it's, hey, we've been doing something that's helped us survive for quite some time, and you're telling us to stop doing that to try something that has no proof point whatsoever because there might be a chance of it improving our lives, right? Now, I'm actually, if you go back for the tens of thousands of years that we've been on this planet, that meant you're going to put my life in risk. Fuck you. Like, that's not that's what's going to happen. In my job, it's not really a risk. Like, I might get demoted. I might, I might get fired or whatever. Not Like, these are some risks that we take, but it's still hardwired to us. So when someone comes to us and says, hey, I love the, yes, our, I see our numbers going up. We're performing. I don't think it's going to be that way. Let's go totally do something else. Of course, the natural reaction is going to be, I don't want to do that. Because what they're really saying is, I want this magical thing. So I have a way of communicating this to people, which... If you're a video game nerd like I am, how many of you are familiar with the game Super Mario Brothers? Or you know someone who's played it, right? So there's a little Italian dude, and he goes through the screen, and um, he's really little in the beginning, like me, and then he, he eats a mushroom, weird, and then he becomes big like Steven, <laughs> makes sense. And there's this element in there, and then there's a flower that you eat. Again, now that I'm thinking about it, this is really like a, like a lot of subtext of drugs, right? So then he takes this flower, maybe like an ayahuasca experience, and then he's going to start throwing fireballs, right? Now, what happens is people who that are... That happens to me every Tuesday. And that's you're the fireball. Right? Yeah, like, this is the evolution of Mario right here. Uh, and I think, uh, for me, what I've noticed the difference is, is that when we're in a company, we know what the out state, we know the fireball state, and it's in our mind, we're like, oh, it's going to be so dope, we're going to be like fire, fireball throwing Mario. And then we know what it takes. You gotta eat this flower. And so what we do is we go around in our organizations go, guys, guys, you gotta eat this flower. And they're like, what, what the, why would I want to eat a flower? Dude, you're like, hi, like, why would I do that, right? Whereas entrepreneurs don't even think, they don't have to convince anyone, right? They're like, I'm gonna throw fireballs and it's gonna be the coolest. And then how they hire people is, do you wanna throw fireballs? Hell yeah, I wanna throw fireballs. Join me, we're gonna throw fireballs. It's gonna be awesome. <laughs> and, it, and everyone gets really excited. So my biggest takeaway, and this is like a really cheapifying, the, the act of six years of work at IDEO, but it was me focusing not on getting people to eat the flower, but focus on envisioning them throwing fireballs. And then getting them so excited about eating that fireball that they see it. Like, it has to be so far removed from, like, do you want to be little Mario that gets, like, squashed by a little turtle? Like, you're going to get killed by a turtle? Like, that's what you want to be? Or do you want to be, like, fire-throwing Mario? And they're like, yes! And the risk of losing that vision becomes so great that it feels painful to lose it. And it's yeah. like, what do I need to do? I can eat a flower. Sure, I can do that. So that's my, in a nutshell, way of describing the challenges <laughs> of... Innovation. Six years. Six years of innovation work. Mario Brothers. Can I shrink that a, a little more? Yes. Never One pitch more. an idea, only pitch an outcome. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. 
no one gives a shit about an idea. No one risks anything when they say no to an idea. If you're in an organization and you're solving a mission-critical problem and you're starting to gain results that are better, faster, smarter, higher return on investment than what the company has always done or any other company has always done, pitch that. Don't yeah. walk into a room and pitch a PowerPoint deck that has a hypothetical, like, hey, are you feeling me, fireballs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fuck that. Yeah. Go in and be like, look, this is either going to happen. The question is not whether this can happen. The question is whether this will continue to happen here. Yeah. Right. I've already made it happen. And getting to a place where you're not trying to get people to get religion about innovation, but yeah. you're actually building the outcome that the company can't live without through innovation. Yeah. And at some point, they're like, what did you, how did you do that? What happened? And you're, you, you, it repositions the power dynamic around innovation and design when you get to that moment. Because I think that's always been my experience. It's like you, you almost have to do that Trojan horse, right? Because I think if you're like, we're going to be different and here are org charts and, you know, now this is what we're, way we're going to be and here's our new values and everybody's just like, you know, the other eyes roll in the back of their head. Yeah. Because I think that that is sort of the yeah. challenge of it. And I think, you know, it, it is also up against the fact that, you know, for me, most companies are more afraid of like, changing their process or doing something different than they actually are about being disrupted or being outsourced. I think because the muscle memory to that old way of doing things, it, and I think that that's why for me, like that was like where my brand and like that crazy one was coming out of, because I think it was what you said was like, you've got to be that person. And look, I think that that's the other part of it is to be the person that goes in and sells that in and to, and to be like the fireball guy, you've got to believe it and know that like there are days because I mean that's the thing like you know and I talk about that sometimes like my crazy one tattoo is not like some fanboy apple thing it's like because some days I need a reminder of how I need to show up and like I've gotten to that place of like marking my body and like some days it's an affirmation some days it's a reminder to like get off your ass and go be pissed off but like there's that sort of thing of like you've got to be the one who's prepared to run up the hill and know that not everybody's going to see it right away because I think that's the one thing that I've learned is in the beginning, for everything we're talking about, they're going to tell you you're crazy. They're going to tell you you're different. They're going to tell you they don't understand it until the moment where you find some success. And then isn't it funny how those same people who made fun of you are going to seek you out for the same reason? I also think you have to have a freak coming out party in these companies. <laughs> oh, oh, please, oh, please, <laughs> please explain. Well, because I, 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 you know, I don't know. I happen to have like cut my entrepreneurial teeth on Wall Street. If anyone was wondering what happens at the Morningstar conference, I can probably tell you. Um, <laughs> um, and you know, that's like the least fertile, most lonely soil for someone who's wired like us. To, oh yeah. To, you were. That's at why Citigroup. we all quickly walk past it. Like you can, you can. You can it's like you know Voldemort. PTSD. Like, PTSD. Like, PTSD. Going, but uh, what I have found is like once you sort of loosen your tie and someone sees the neck tattoo, they're like, oh shit, I have a neck tattoo also. And once you kind of build that secret society, that coalition of everyone who's wired like you and you, you make it a safe space for entrepreneurs and weirdos and people that, you know, didn't listen to Phil Collins in the 80s, but instead were listening to Black Flag. Like... <laughs> You know, once you create a safe space for those people to sort of join together and, and support one another and, and push each other to not measure yourself on the company's curve, not don't grade yourself on innovation inside of this company's curve, but what does entrepreneurship in the actual world look like? And let's grade one another and hold each other accountable to being our best entrepreneurial self, period. Not at Citigroup, yeah. not at Bloomberg, but in the actual world of entrepreneurship, 
let's push each other to do that. And if that means we have to leave, then let's do that. Well, I think that's why I was like that term that you kind of coined that entrepreneur. Because I think that's always the thing for me is like whenever I work with a lot of in-house teams, I'm like act more like an agency. Because I think that there's, there's a level of we're going to come in, we're going to have a philosophy, we're going to find that opportunity, this is the vision we want to do, we want to bring that to life, where I think people get a little too kind of acclimatized to like what is normal inside of their company and you start to rage against that a little bit mm. to kind of do that. But Yeah, you know, it's funny, I was just, as I was looking at your glowing presence and your wise words, it, it, <laughs> I, saw, I saw the words why innovation is really authorized and I saw you and I was like, wow, okay. <laughs> uh, but it, it, it kind of spoke to me because I think there's two things and I, and I think there's two sides to this. Um, and to take ownership as someone who wants to innovate, like it's easy to complain about the system and the man is out to get you and they don't want to have change and things like this, but the, rea the reality is, it is so, it's such hard work that most people don't have the will to continue doing it. And I think that's the same thing with entrepreneurs. You know, there's a 90% chance that you'll fail as a startup. And it's actually, when you look at the data, it's not because of product market fit and all this stuff. Half of te all teams will split up because there's a fight between the two founders. And usually it's about something silly or like attention around a choice. And I think this is the reality of innovation, that it's not glorious and it's a hell of a trek, right? You're convincing people who don't want to be have their minds change, that they should change something they're doing or something that they feel good about. And so it's a very uncomfortable place to be. And I think I'll talk about that a little bit later, but there's a mindset that comes to this that you have to just embrace. You said punk, right? You said a punk rocker or like a rebel or a pirate and all these things. It's because when you own that you will not be liked for the outcome that you're trying to seek, you actually can just let go. You can let go of some of the things that you're hoping for, which is what evolution helps you do, right? People want to belong a part of a group. This is how we, that's how we survive. So if you can let go of the need to belong, you can then even approach the relationships that you're building in a different way. Like you're not serving them because you want them to be your friend. You're, you're rebelling because you're in service of them. You're, you're trying to break the rules because you hope and wish that it is better for the organization. And so, the outcome is going to be different. It's going to be the innovation. It's not going to be likability. It's not going to be a promotion, perhaps. And I've, I've been on, to be fair, people hire IDEO, pay lots of money for IDEO because they're like, if I get them in, they're going to do something really shiny. I'm going to get that raise. And then I'm bouncing and getting a, working for a, whatever, big company co number. And I'll be a CIO or a CDO or C whatever, chief design officer. That can happen too. But if you really want to do it, the real innovation comes from long slogs of time, and it, and it does take time. And then there's a moment where you look back and say, ah, it happened. But that is something I want to just take ownership on as an innovator. I don't, I don't think it's easy to say like it's just the system's fault. I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna push on that a little bit if I can. Um, it is a long slog, but it's almost like, uh, what was that 80s cartoon where all the lions come together and form a giant person? Voltron, Voltron. Voltron. thank you. Yeah. It's kind of some Voltron shit, because if it works in, in, in a real way, it's not a long slog. It's, it's multiple exponential cells sort of finding one another and building exponential growth in an organization that's linear and making it a new normal for the organization. And all of those reaching a scale where it starts to become, um, it tips the balance of how things get done and who has a voice. That, that takes time, but day to day, it's pretty fast. It's pretty aggressive. Um, and, and the other thing I would say is it also, it's not just the punks. You also have to convert people who are in the C-suite, who yeah. are executives to become godfathers, to view their, to use their power in order 
to catalyze an innovation inflection point within their organization. That, otherwise, you're kind of running to stand still. You never reach that critical mass. I mean, Steve and I first talked about Fritz Van Passion at Starwood. Um, that's an incredible... You, you can yeah. take the exact same starting point that you had at Starwood and you put that in an organization where you don't have that godfather who's like, yeah. I've got you, I'm going to look out for you, and you get a completely different result. Well, and I think a lot of what it is, though, too, is I think a lot of innovation, we, we, tend, we tend to love the result, right? Like, I think for most of us in the industry, we tend to fetishize the beginning and the end, right? Like, you know, Stephen was in the garage, and then it was, and it's like all the, the no, because I think, you know, there were, even internally, like with all the work we did at Starwood, so, I mean, I had, the most amazing, I mean, he was so amazing, he's broken me for every other company I've worked for. So, I mean, like, he'd worked alongside Phil Knight at Nike, he was the CEO at Coors, and then came into Starwood. And, I mean, it was a CEO who did this amazing thing that was so incredibly rare, where he hired smart people and then said, I trust you to do your job. Imagine that. <laughs> and it was, I mean, like, honestly, when I look back at it, like, I was trusted with decisions that I should not have been. <laughs> Right? Like, it was like, no, go to Apple and go, like, see what they're doing. And if it's a good idea, like, just keep going. And he's like, I'll take the flack for it. And it's like, okay. Um, you know, it's only the future of the whole company. It's cool. Um, but I think, you know, but there was that in, in, in him, because even now, whenever he gets interviewed and stuff like that, he'll kind of, they'll say, like, well, for the innovation you did. And he'll say, like, I didn't do that. I just created the space to let other people make it happen. Yeah. And I think also, you know, there were, there were a lot of people who got really pissed off. I probably was almost fired twice. Um, but I think that there is that ability, you know, to also to, to have that sort of safe space and to find where can you find that kind of support system or somebody who will allow it to happen. Because, no, I think, you know, I've got plenty of opportunities where we sort of would do something and then you'd watch somebody at another company have the exact same opportunity. And where we were heroes and we were on stage and this was amazing, their leadership couldn't get out of their own fucking way. Yeah. And would snatch victory, like, from the jaws of defeat. Like, they, they had it. They were there. They would have been on stage if they just would have trusted their people and let it happen. And they came in and they were just kind of like, all of a sudden, again, that's why I talk about like the need to be right. They were like, no, no, I'm in charge. I need to make this decision. And it's like, you know, again, so there are those sort of things. And I think, you know, that's that sort of part. And I think that's for me, like, I think one, our ability to charge into that, but also to, because for me, that was the other thing. Like for those of you who are leaders or, or part of companies, like with Fritz, I went into work every single day absolute, I would have, there was nothing I would have done not to let him down. Right. There was no amount of work that I was going to put in. There was like, I, the, for the trust that he was willing to give me, we were not going to fail because I knew what he was risking in doing it. And I think that that was that thing of just by him sort of giving us that space, the team just, and he never said it, right? But we knew what was kind of the stakes were to be able to do that. And I think that's where it's sort of like that concept of leadership, we kind of screw ourselves up. Yeah. Let, let me ask you something, Steve. Yeah. Um, you mentioned before when you were in-house at City that you told your team, um, think of yourselves as an agency. And yeah. the, the, um, the rash that broke out under my shirt was, um, <laughs> is that there's a huge gap between a design entrepreneur and an agency designer. No, there is. And, and I think, I mean, for me, it was more, because I, I think in, in what I saw with a lot of in-house teams was we would just simply accept what we were given. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I think, you know, that willingness to run into the burning building, that willingness to stand up and say, because I think in a lot of companies, what happens is that people just, they go with the status quo because right. it's easier. It's easier for me to believe what everybody else believes because then I don't stand out. I'm not an irritant because the moment whenever I see I stand for something, I plant a flag, I take a position, 
well, now it gets uncomfortable. People can think about me. They can judge me. They can, I mean, there are, I know so many people who have made very lucrative careers out of hitting deadlines and kissing ass, and that's it. Like, no discernible talent. You all just thought of someone, right? Like, who you work with every day. You're like, oh, yeah, Dave, right? Like, you all just, like, everybody's got that person where you're just, and, and that's the unfortunate part because I think, but for me, it was that entrepreneurial mindset. It was the ability that we were going to be the only sane space in that company and that we needed to recognize that all we had were each other. Yeah. And that every single day, I'd always describe it as like the center of a hurricane because in the very center is the eye and the eye is the only calm part of the storm and that we were the eye of the hurricane because if we took one step in any direction, there's like flying buildings and cows and like all, <laughs> it was just, it was like mayhem, right? So I think that for me, it was that we had to be the change. Stop sitting around, stop waiting for somebody else, stop thinking that somebody else is gonna bring it. Like if we want it, it is up to us. And so I think that was why, and I know that can, that agency can get miscast, but I, I do think that that's the difference, right? Because in an agency, there's an unspoken thing that if I do shitty work, we get fired. There's a sense of urgency that comes out of that, that in-house, you, you, you can sort of like, you, you can let that mellow away and just kind of like, well, yeah, we'll get to it. I, I, the reason I said, I just, this is going to piss a bunch of people in this room off, so apologies. In welcome to all of our, welcome to <laughs> right. of our careers. Well, I just, I think um, the professional muscle memory that you have to build as a designer in a startup that's going from concept to launch, and you know that you have $200,000 in four months, yeah. or else you're done. Right. The whole thing's over. And... You, you have to launch very fast. The, the, the nature of what the pressure of a, of a startup is means that you have to build and not wait around. And I, I find so often that in a lot of the best agencies, you have like this perfectly crafted C plus. You know, it's, it's good enough that no one gets fired. Yeah. But bad enough or incomplete enough that you have to bring them back in for multiple, multiple rounds. Yeah. And I think being entrepreneurial in an agency is a really different thing than being a design entrepreneur well, who's but, grown up it, in a Yeah, startup. but I think there's that sense of risk, right? Because I think it's even the same thing. Like, whenever you work with startup, like, anytime I work with startups who are people who come from money, that's my thing. Like, yeah, if this doesn't work, the lights don't stay on, the bills don't get paid, I yeah. lose my, I lose my, like, there is a sense of urgency and scrappiness. This is not optional, right? Yeah, and I think that's the hard part when you go into big companies, whenever you go into those sort of things where, you know, at the end of the day, we know it is optional. And I think, but that's that part of it is how do you get for you and your team to light that fire? And I think that's why, you know, like the fireball analogy, or I think, like, this is why I've seen as my spirit animal. Like, if you just watch him get that charged up, you're like, God, I want to show up like that person every day. Yeah. <clears throat> but I, that's what I said. But I think, but you, you sort of, you know, as somebody who can kind of help coach some of those things, like, I guess there is that how do you imbue a sense of urgency or even what you did at IDEO or with, with Expo now? Like, yeah. I mean, no, look, I think, uh, again, uh, first of all, I think agencies who are really committed to the work, and especially designers, so forget about the agency part because that's the business part, but a designer, I remember being part of teams and the client would want something and you kind of compromise and you compromise until it's good enough and they're happy with it because you want to have continued work. Does this sound familiar to some of you guys? Or maybe you're on the other side of it where you're like, hey, they were really, they were really agreeable. Yeah, it's great. Let's keep working with them. Um, that happened, and I think as a designer, you want you don't want to sacrifice your integrity, right? You don't want to sacrifice that creative force, which is, it is a provocation. It is a, I don't know if we have the right questions, much less the answer yet, you know, and being able to wrestle with that. And I think the one thing I realize is, as you move from the abstract, which is innovation as an idea, to then paying someone money to do it, 
it, I still had an itch. I still had an itch of like, what is, this doesn't feel real yet. This doesn't feel, I'm not close enough to it counting. Like there's not enough on the line. And I think you're getting to this. And yeah. so, uh, I'll talk about this a little later, but I had a chance to go to Peru. So it was, IDEO doesn't send or embed people within organizations. This is the first time they had ever done that. They sent me and another person to Peru to work with this organization to set up an outpost. But what it was is it was setting up an outpost to work with 30 companies, part of this holding company, and we would have to be accountable. So not only do I like shine, I give a deliverable at the end of the thing and say, this is what you guys should do. They're like, great. Now show up on Monday and help us implement this. And to feel that, yeah. what's at stake there, with this, which is like, oof, the ideas of innovation, the idea of change and doing something great. What happens when someone doesn't buy your idea? What happens if it's actually just a bad idea? Like you thought you were doing something great, but actually people don't want it. Like it sounded really cool when you get into that conference and you saw it and you're like, ah, oh, we're all going to have open plan desks and it's going to be, <laughs> we're going to tear down the cubicles. Woo! And then you realize like, ah, oh, I can't even do work in this environment. What are you going to do then? And I think the act of, that's what I liked about it. And this is similar to the entrepreneur. It's the act of, it's like a active state. There's never a final state. The minute you've entered the final state, you've been institutionalized. This is the same goes for social movements, by the way. The, the, the death of a social movement is twofold. Either it's successful and it gets institutionalized and there's laws that are passed and those people actually become governors, policymakers, et cetera, into that system. Think of the civil rights movement, et cetera. Or it gets crushed. It just gets crushed. Dominated, people get killed, et cetera, et cetera. The same goes with innovation. The minute you've innovated something new, you have to go on to the next thing. You have to continue to push and wrestle the implementation of that and wrestle it. Otherwise, you're in a very precarious area of being the expert. And then the expert at that given time, and then 10 years passes, and you're still giving talks about that thing that you did 10 years ago. And I think that's the, that's my, uh, admonition to anyone who wants to innovate. It's like, you have to be a practitioner. Otherwise, you're just, you're not that. You're but not I also think what I love about what you just said is that we are part of a movement. You're not a designer. You're part of a design movement. And if you think of your role inside of your organization as we are leading the innovation movement, mm. that's such a different job description. That's such a, that totally changes what your success criteria are, um, how you should feel when you get home from work every day, the right reason to be exhausted versus the wrong mm, reason to be mm. exhausted. Um, I dig that. Yeah, that's good. Should we... Um, I was going to say, I think kind of yeah, looking at time what? and stuff like that, we've got about 10 minutes or so left. So I think, why don't, why don't we open it up with some questions? And I think anybody who's got, I don't know if we have microphones or we're just going to need to yell it out for people, I think... We'll start there, and then with the gentleman over here. So whoever had their hand up, back over there. What we do in the in a situation where there's an in-house designer and an agency? Okay. And they clash. Is that what you said? Okay, I was gonna say I was like, oh, that's a good, that's a good situation. But they clash. That's not a good situation, right? Yeah. I, rock paper scissors. I, I mean, look, I, I would. I mean, my thing has always been that I feel like there needs to be a hierarchy. And my thing was for the agencies that I worked with. On the one hand, I wanted to I wanted to get to a place where we no longer thought that outside thinking was the best. That you know there was a bit more of a balance. So that for me, it was always the fact that my team was the portal and the gateway that the agencies went through. But for me, it was it was a partnership. So we would co-present, we would actually partner with each other to be able to do things like that. We never competed. We never wanted to clash because at the end of the day, everyone will lose. Like the in-house team is going to lose. The agency is going to lose. And, and if nobody sees that, and both sides don't see that, it's a real problem because now all of a sudden we're just creating all this conflict, we're creating all these sort of issues. So for me, it's like, look, there needs to be a clear, like, what is the hierarchy? Who makes the decisions? Because at the end of the day, it was, you know, they were working for me and my team, 
but it was also on me to not act like that asshole, right? Who is like, you are here because, you know, I am giving you this. It was like, no, look, we are here as partners and both sides need to show up to that, which means both sides need to invest in the relationship. Both sides need to be open and honest about what is working and what is not. Because yeah, if it just becomes competitive, everybody's gonna lose on that. My, my, my experience with that is you have to be loyal to the mission rather than to who's fulfilling it. And what I mean by that is what you as an in-house team understand is why this is important. What does success look like? What does failure look like? What's the cost of not innovating? And that ultimately has to be the thing that brings everyone together. And if it comes into the situation where, no, that's my turf, no, that's my turf, I find that that very often is, and, and what I think the in-house team is responsible for is holding people accountable to what the CEO is going to say on your next earnings call. Mm. Are they going to be able to talk about what you're creating and what you're building when an investor from Morningstar goes and knocks on their door and is like, what's going on this quarter? Tell me about that project. Um, you, should, you have to hold the entire team accountable to that. Um, yeah. And I feel like when that kind of hierarchy of needs isn't really defined, it becomes territorial and uh, and, and I think you need tense. to save each other from institutional thinking. Because there are a lot of agencies I was work with where I would tell them to stop acting like an agency, which was <laughs> this was the brief and this is how far we were going to go and we were scoped to invest in this. That, that's not what a partnership is, right? Like you don't kind of say like, okay, these are my boundaries and this is all that I'm going to do. Like that, that's a commoditized relationship. Right. And so I think, you know, where again, you want them to bring the sense of urgency, you need to keep them from, and like I said, I think there needs to be a give and take where, you know, again, people are going to have to invest in, and you have to get beyond the thought trap too. Like everybody is spec with this budget and this time to work on this project and we're only going to think this far. It's, it's a failure trap that happens every time because then, you know, we get this very sort of like happenstance sort of work and thinking that happens. Yeah, I think uh, I have a framework for this actually that I ask myself. I've been on both sides now. So uh, now I, I'm annoyed by agencies. I was on that side. I, I actually didn't think of IDEO as an agency for, for quite some time until people kept telling me I'm an agency. And I was like, okay, I'm an agency. Um, I have a framework. These are three questions that I ask. And from the agency's side and from the, and from the design team side, uh, am I provoking enough? Like in other words, challenging the assumptions, challenging, is this the right answer? And, and not necessarily always in a bad way, inspiring. Am I bringing inspirational things that's getting this team to think differently? And the second one is, or am I supercharging? So in other words, a lot of times it's a capabilities issue. We have two designers on our team. We don't have the bandwidth, so we're going to bring a bunch of people. And then, you know, with designers, I, you know, they can't live by themselves, right? They'll wither like, like lonely beasts. Like they'll just kind of go in a corner and turn into rocks. So the more designers you have, the more there's an energy. Is that happening? And if those two things aren't happening, usually my experience has been, from, from being, from being an IDEO and working with the client, that there's laziness on the other side. So they're hoping that I will fill in a gap. And the problem with that is, is that the minute we go, that gap will continue. And that mission that you were talking about will, will start to fail. Like I made it seem like it's succeeding, but then it's going to fail. On the other side of it, so on the other side is, if they're not provoking me or if I'm not provoking them, I'm not doing my work as a designer. I'm not showing up and saying, wow, I don't know if that's the right answer. Like I know you spent a week doing that. But I still feel uncomfortable with it. Can we get somewhere? And I think that's my, it's a little, it's a cheap framework, but it's a quick framework that I ask every, after every meeting with the client or an agency. Awesome. Good question there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, shit. Yeah, so, the, yeah, the question was like, <laughs> what are the moments in our careers where you sort of put yourself out there and kind of had that, that moment where you had things on the line? I think, um, 
The answer is yes. <laughs> I mean, the answer, I, mean look, I think it's a two-part answer, right? I, I think the one answer that I would tell you is don't don't copy other people's careers, right? I, I think like on the like learn learn what, look at what why they did it. Don't look at how they did it, right? Because like for me, like that's why I don't tend to talk about my work very much. I always feel like it's getting yesterday's winning lottery numbers. Like somebody who you aren't at a company you don't work for with leadership that you don't have on a project you're not a part of did something you're not working on, like. <laughs> It, it, it's like an art critique, right? It's like, great, like, it's pretty, but I don't know what the fuck I can learn from it. Mm -hmm. um, no, and, and I think, you know, I, would, I, I can at least answer for me, I'm, I'm going to guess I'm answering for all of us. I, if that's not a daily question of, like, what did I risk today, then you're probably not doing it right, right? Because I, I think there's a certain point where, like, you've got to put yourself out there. You've got to be emotionally vulnerable. You've got to take a risk. You've got to, and look, some days are bigger than others, but every single day, like, you, you've got to get comfortable being uncomfortable. You've got, that's why, like, I said that in my talk. That's why I continue to believe that. Like, because, also because if you, and if you, like, you are a leader or if you're trying to change your company, if you are not willing to do that, you can be damn sure you're not starting a movement. Because you've got to show up every day and do that. And that's, that's part of the problem with it. That's why a lot of people give up. You don't get the benefit of a bad day. Like, oh, today there's not going to be a movement. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I Opposition is validation. Yeah. Opposition is validation. If you're not pissing people off, you're not breaking through anything. You haven't innovated a goddamn thing. And when I think of the breakthrough moments, it's always because people are like, you're putting me in an existential risk position, or I've put myself in an existential risk position. That is scary. It requires ovarian and testicular fortitude. <laughs> ovarian also, perhaps. Uh, and every time I'm up at that mark where it's like, do you have it in you? Um, I, I don't regret any of those moments, as scary as they were. Yeah, I mean, for me, that's like the scent of like blood for a shark, right? Like the moment whenever people get uncomfortable, man, I'm like a pack of dogs on a three-legged cat. <laughs> like, it is, that is the moment I am going the right way, right? Because if everybody's like, oh, this is great, I really love it, it didn't go far enough, right? Like at that moment, people are like, well, we're gonna have to do some stuff different. Well, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not sure. Well, mm -hmm. you know, maybe I'm gonna have to go out on a limb with you. It's like. That is where you just start hammering on that because that, that's the thing is like it's going to mean that something's going to need to be different. That's why in most companies, like you start with this really great idea and then you have enough of those conversations keeps getting smaller and safer and neutered down and then pretty soon you just launch a slightly better looking version of your BAU. And then, and then that's, why what, that's why I said like most companies, that's why their superpower is rationalizing mediocrity because we have this really great idea but somehow we need to make ourselves feel okay about this sort of like incremental like little thing that we just launched but let's tell ourselves that it's great. Is it really? If you ask a customer, no. But we don't want to have that conversation because then we're going to be faced with the fact that, again, we're not, we're not really making that change. And that's that hard part. And again, like, you know, bring a portable soapbox with you everywhere you go, right? Because you're going to need to jump up on it and make people believe. Boy, you know, I think that's such a smart... What's your name? Kevin. Kevin, I think that's such a smart question. I think it's the right question to ask. Uh, and I, these gentlemen have answered it very adequately and very, um, actually I agree with adequately? everything. Adequately? Okay. Adequately. I don't like to embellish. Wow. I don't like to embellish. Wow. It was It was good. It was that, good. Like, I, I have nothing I show, to add. I show up every day to be adequate. No, no. I, 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 I have nothing to add. But I, I just want to comment on the, the nature of that question, uh, which is the right question every designer, and I use the capital D designer to ask. They answered it right. But I think I just want to comment on the question because, and building on both of their things is, asking the question why you're asking that question is super important because you can be very good at being 
contrarian. I hate Silicon Valley because every VC is a contrarian. I'm going to say what no one else is going to say. Being a contrarian is no longer being a contrarian anymore. So it's like, it's kind of awkward, right? And so I was very comfortable telling clients at some point, how willing are you to be willing to be wrong? And it made them feel really uncomfortable. But I was okay. I became comfortable with that uncomfort. I was no longer going on a limb, right? What was going on a limb was thinking, and I'm going back to Greg's point, it's like thinking, how am I showing up in service of this design or this mission or this thing? How am I going out on a limb? And it, it, there should be a talk, someone maybe here can do it, on selfless design, where you actually cease to care about your position in the design, the client, the agency, and it just becomes about this product. I, I got some Dieter Ram shit right there, right? It's like you just, you lose yourself in the moment of the design. And there are moments where I can find, rare moments that I have done that, where I, after the call, I'm like, holy shit, did I just say that to the CEO of IDEO? And like, I'm like, we don't need to do more work for a client in front of our client. Like, that was absolutely insane. But at you the just, moment... You just reminded me of that scene in Dodgeball where Vince Vaughn wraps the blindfold. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's like, it was crazy. And I think those are the moments where you're like, why did I do that? You, to your point, it's like, because it was the right thing to do for this design. You know, and I think there's, those are the moments you... Those and are the and moments that's what I say, but I think it's also making peace with like, and at least for me, like, you know what? If I'm going to get fired, that's the moment I want to get fired for. Sure. Like, I, I want to get fired on my feet. I want to get fired for, like, you want to fire me for that? This isn't the fucking company I want to be a part of. And, and that's why I said, and it's like, you know, you, you need to be with me. You can bet against me. And, and it does take a little bit of that, like, you know, repeat it in the mirror until you believe it sometimes. But A lot of times. A lot of times. <laughs> um, but I think that, you know, there is that sort of moment of, like, you know, look, th this is what I believe, and I, and I will stand up and say that. Because I think, you know, for a lot of people, it's, it's easier just to be quiet. It's easier just to go with the flow. It's, and then sort of, like, bitch about it later. But I think, you know, I think for all of us, there, you know, you say it in that moment because you're just like, you know, look, that, that's the, because in some ways, I think, you know, for all of us, we've sort of become that person where it's like, you know, we'll say what others won't. Everybody knows it. Everybody sees it. Everybody see, it's like a stack of pink elephants and they feed them fucking peanuts, right? Because you're like, that's a problem. They're like, yep, that's a problem. Are we going to do anything about that? It's like, well, that's going to be hard. <laughs> I also, you know, I, I think since my book came out and everyone's like, I'm going to quit my fucking job. I'm going to stick it to the man and fuck those guys. And I'm like, chill. <laughs> chill. That's not what I'm saying. And what I mean by that is not everyone is wired to right. go and take that risk. And there's still a very important role for those people to play in service of the people that are. And I think if you're hearing that and you're like, that doesn't sound like me, like that doesn't mean you should go home and cry and like consider yeah, yourself no, a failure. But how you can act in service of the people that are wired that way is a really important question. Not, not everyone, you know, went to CBGBs and slam danced to Black Flag. You know, but I that's a shitty that. It was very autobiographical. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when you went back to high school on Monday and you were the dude with the blue hair... Yeah. They were like, that's cool. Not for me, but that's cool. That's awesome. That, yeah. there's a role for that. And I think, um, you don't, not everyone has to be a punk in order to be impactful. I don't know that I can think of a better place to, uh, to end it than there. So I think, like I said, we're, we're more than happy to hang out. If you'd like to get a copy of Greg's book, we're going to be signing it out here. But outside of that, thanks so much. Thanks. So that was the panel. I think hopefully you found that discussion as interesting, as insightful, 
as sort of honest and raw as I did, because like I said, I think, you know, these are two guys who I just deeply, deeply respect and I get a huge amount of insight and inspiration out of them. So I'd, I'd highly encourage you to, to go out and follow them. Um, I'll put the links to, to all of them um, in the show notes. So go check that out. And then obviously, as we say every time, look, if you like the show, if you're getting a lot out of it, do me a favor, um, go out and leave a review. It always makes a, a huge difference, brings more people into the show. Um, subscribe so you're sure that you get the latest episodes whenever those come out. Just because of my schedule, not always doing them like clockwork in, but I try to get them out there as often as I can. Um, yeah, you can find out more about the podcast. You can find related articles. You can get information about Greg and Cena and everybody else. Just head over to thecrazyone.com. It's the words of the crazy and the number one.com. And look, you know, let's keep the conversation going. I think you can follow me on social media. You can like the show on Facebook, any of those sort of things. Um, because again, I'm, I'm here to help. And if there's anything that, that you're sort of going through, reach out and let's have a conversation to try and figure out um, if we can get you some answers. Finally, and as always, everybody down in Liga wants me to remind you that the views here are just my own. They don't represent any of my current or former employers. And so I, I say it every time because I mean it every time, but thank you for your time. I know that time is truly the only real commodity that any of us have. I'm always incredibly humbled. Do you want to spend any of it listening to me? So hopefully you've got a little bit of a better sense of uh, why innovation is rarely authorized. Hopefully you want to run out and convince a, uh, a bunch of people to throw fireballs with you. And uh, until next time, stay crazy.